series of four uh, lectures we hope to have uh, this academic year. Uh, and what we have, uh, person we have with us today is Dr. Stephen Nathanson from Northeastern University. Uh, Professor Nathanson is uh, the author of six books. And uh, do this in reverse order. The idea of the ideal of rationality from 1985, and eye for an eye, the immorality of punishing by death. Uh, should we consent to be governed? A short introduction to political philosophy. Patriotism, morality, and peace, 1993. Economic justice from 1998, and uh, most recently. Terrorism and the Ethics of War from 2010. Uh, this book was named the Outstanding Book in Social Philosophy uh, by the North American Society for Social Philosophy. And in addition, Professor Nathanson has received an Excellence in Research Award from Northeastern University. Uh, in the space between economic justice and uh, terrorism and the Ethics of War, he published more than a dozen um, articles. So he's been very busy uh, doing work in this uh, important area of the ethics of war, which is especially, unfortunately, pertinent for our time. Uh, very happy to have Professor Nathanson with us today. Uh, and uh, he's going to speak to you on the question, uh, do we really believe that terrorism is always wrong? Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Nathanson. Thanks a lot, John. Great. Well, it's really a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate uh, being invited to come and talk to you. Uh, I want to say, should I say about one of my favorite topics? It's, it's all such a horrible business, that, uh, but an interesting and important topic uh, still. Um, and uh, the handout just is, is not really uh, an outline exactly of the talk, but there are some things that I thought if you had them in printed form, you could uh, think about them or consult them a bit, and I put some other book references and such. Um, so I think I will uh, just launch in. So I've got this, what may seem like a little bit of a weird title, Do We Really Believe That Terrorism Is, is Always Wrong? Because uh, it sort of puts us in the focus rather than terrorism, sort of a question about ourselves. And it may seem like a pointless question, but I'll try to indicate that uh, why it's not, uh, and in some ways maybe try to say some things that are unsettling. Uh, but it, toward the end, although it's not as much as I would like to do, I'm going to try to do some sort of constructive things and give you some ideas perhaps or some suggestions about ways to think about the issues that uh, um, I'm going to raise. So I want to start with uh, what I call a philosophical preface uh, from one of my favorite philosophers, William James, in the uh, chapter two, uh, lecture two of uh, his work, Pragmatism, uh, which I highly recommend. Uh, he, he talks about the issue of belief change and how it is that we change our beliefs. Uh, and so what he, what he says is this. The, He's describing a situation. The individual has a stock of old opinions. So each of us, our, our heads, our minds, uh, are full of all sorts of beliefs that we've acquired. And James, some of you may know, as a pragmatist, saw our belief system as a kind of tool. It's our, it's our guide. You know, It's our AAA atlas 
to the world. It, so our beliefs are the means by which we navigate the world. So we have a stock of old opinions. But he says he meets a new experience that puts them to a strain. Somebody contradicts them or he discovers that they contradict each other or he hears of facts with which they are incompatible. The result is an inward trouble from which he seeks to escape by modifying his previous mass of opinions. And then he adds, in terms of the response, he adds, he saves as much as he can of the original stock of beliefs. For in this matter of belief, we are all extreme conservatives. So what I really like about this uh, set of, of uh, claims by James is that he talks about the ways in which we have these beliefs and you know we use them all the time we don't even think about them actually we use them to get around the world but then things happen that as he says are sort of unsettling I mean the sort of later term I know James made up a lot of neat terms but uh, this one I think comes later the notion of cognitive dissonance where you suddenly realize that some of your beliefs don't fit together quite and so there's a dissonance a kind of discomfort Charles Sanders Peirce, the other important American uh, pragmatist and other, uh, uh, talks about uh, the roots of inquiry in the same way. That inquiry, we may think that we like to think about things because we're driven by curiosity or we have noble desires for knowledge. But Peirce, and, and James I think was picking up on the same idea, thought the reason we engage in inquiry is because we are uncomfortable something happens. We, as long as we've got our beliefs and we're kind of chugging along uh, and they're working okay, we're relaxed, we're happy, all's going well. And then something happens in the way that James describes here so that things don't quite fit. There, there's something the matter, this cognitive dissonance. And that's what forces us to engage in inquiry. And basically, so the, the motivation for inquiry is discomfort. And the aim of inquiry, Peirce puts this more strongly than James, but is a kind of comfort. We want to get back to where we were before. We've got a nice set of beliefs. We can go along, do other things, whatever, curl up, uh, <laughs> with, you know, have a nice uh, time talking to friends, whatever, not to be subject to this inward trouble. So I just want this as a little bit of a preface to thinking about uh, beliefs about terrorism. So I want to start with what I'll call the standard view, uh, the standard moral view of terrorism. And it has two sort of simple components. The first has to do with what you might think of as acts of terrorism. And the idea is that they are always wrong. And I think going back to the 9-11 attacks, which really are the, you know, sort of the spark that has driven a lot of people's thinking to engage in, in, in thinking about these topics, uh, myself included, uh, that these were such horrible attacks that one, and they were called terrorism, so that the idea it seemed obvious was that anything like this had to be deeply and absolutely wrong. The second piece of the standard view has to do with people who engage in these actions, and the view is that these are evil people. So that, I'm calling this the standard view of these two components. And just a couple of uh, quotations. Um, 
So first from uh, President George W. Bush uh, in his farewell address, January 2009, America, he said, must maintain our moral clarity. Good and evil are present in this world, and between the two there can be no compromise. Murdering the innocent to advance an ideology is wrong every time, everywhere. Uh, in an earlier remark, just shortly after, two weeks after the 9-11 attacks, I believe Bush, uh, President Bush was giving a talk to in the FBI building or something, and he described the, the terrorists. The people who did this act are evil people. They're flat evil. That's all they can think about is evil. So they had no positive purposes. He says, I deleted this, but they have no ideology. They are just evil. And I, I like his metaphor, I think it's powerful, of, of flatness. They're one-dimensional. That's all there is to them. So that, I think, sort of expresses what I'm calling the standard view. We get this condemnation of this terrorist attack and everyone like it. So murdering the innocent, wrong every time, everywhere. Just one other example of a similar kind of comment. So in February 2002, there was published a, uh, a kind of statement, fairly long statement, uh, called What We Are Fighting For, a letter from America. It was signed by 60, 75, uh, mostly academics and other uh, you know, people with some status, prestige, name recognition. Um, and basically, it, it was a kind of justification for the war on terrorism. Uh, and in the course of that, you can find this on, online. Uh, and did I put it? I didn't put it on the handout, but uh, American Values. Uh, so you could find the thing, and there were some responses to it. We are united in our conviction and are confident that all people of goodwill in the world will agree that no appeal to the merits or demerits of specific foreign policies can ever justify the mass slaughter of innocent persons. By the way, I, just so you're not thinking about, oh, what does Nathanson think? Is he for slaughtering innocent people? Uh, and so let me, uh, you know, put you at your ease if, if that's what it is. Um, so I actually agree with these strong condemnations of terrorist acts and the killing of innocent people. And in fact, the main thesis uh, of this book of mine, Terrorism and the, Act of, and the Ethics of War, is a defense of, uh, of non-combatant immunity, of the rule against killing innocent people in the course of war and other political violence. Um, but you'll see there are things where I, I differ with these, these people. Um, so one of the things, again, I want to point out that there's two things going on in this, uh, in this quote. One is a condemnation of certain kinds of actions. And the other is a kind of assumption, well, a couple of assumptions. One is, as I say, we are confident that all people of goodwill in the world will agree in condemning these actions. We are confident. And so if somebody doesn't agree with this, they are not a person of goodwill. And President Bush, in, in talking about the uh, good and evil being present in the world, there can't be any compromise between the two, is really a kind of dividing up of people here. There are good people 
there are evil people. The good people agree with what President Bush has said. The, evil, the people who disagree are, are evil. And I think essentially this statement from these scholars and others uh, says the same thing, a judgment of people as well as a judgment of actions. So <coughs> here's, here's a, I don't know who made this up, uh, but probably the most famous one-liner about terrorism. Uh, one person's, one man's terrorist is another, another man or person's freedom fighter. Uh, now, I don't know if you, you may be familiar with this, maybe, maybe not, but uh, when I sort of came across that, I found that a very unsettling comment. The sort of thing that William James is talking about, I think, uh, where there's something that in one way resonates as true, but also, even if we don't know exactly what it's saying, uh, seems like it's undermining something we want to believe. So, you know, in, as a philosopher, I try perhaps to excess to be as explicit and clear about everything, but I have to say that sometimes one-liners that are vaguer, less explicit, can be more powerful and more unsettling. So here's a very unsettling one. So I'll, now I'll do my thing and say a little bit about what part of what I take this to be suggesting. It doesn't tell us more, so it's a one-liner, but what is suggested. And the first two parts of this are really in a kind, they're kind of descriptive remarks, and, they, and I think they do partly ring true that people only apply the word terrorism to actions that are carried out by their enemies. That there's a selective labeling that goes on. And similarly, if there are similar actions done by people who somehow we think of as good people or allies or whatever, or have good causes, uh, then we call them freedom fighters. They call similar actions by friends freedom, freedom, freedom fighting or y use some other positive term. So this, these first two sentences here are really, they're kind of factual claims about how people use terms. They might be true, they might be false, but in any case, they, they're saying that, you know, people are very selective in who they call uh, terrorists. Uh, and so the third part of this, which is uh, not directly, it's kind of an inference from these facts, is the notion that because terrorism has no objective meaning, right, so it's used in this sort of subjective way by people, that it, terrorism in a way is in the eye of the beholder, right? I look at one kind of atrocity done by terrible people that I think ill of, I say, oh, terrorism. I look at another atrocity uh, done by people that I respect or care about their interests or want them to be safe, et cetera, and I say, freedom fighting, okay? So whether it's terrorism or not depends not on the nature of the act, but on who the beholder, who the speaker is. Uh, and so the, the further kind of uh, claim that one might infer is that there's no objective meaning. It's not as if terrorism is a kind of thing and we either recognize it in the world or we, we don't, but rather that it depends on who you are. And the second is that if the word terrorism has no real objective meaning, 
then somebody who says that terrorism is always wrong, that statement that it's always wrong has no meaning either. So this is a very a cynical, challenging, disturbing notion, right? So here we're talking about actions which people, and not just President Bush, not just the people who signed that scholar's document, but many of us feel great revulsion at certain kinds of acts. We think if anything is wrong, if anything is, is evil, this, this is it. We have great confidence. We have no doubts about that. And then there's this, this kind of mini message that, that at least seems to cast a, a kind of doubt. Uh, so what I want to do, so here's part of a constructive thing. I think that to the extent that we take this the slogan, the one person's terrorist slogan, to mean that there's no objective meaning of terrorism, uh, I think that that's not the case. Uh, and so one of the things I try to do is to give a, an objective definition of terrorism. Right? So if we want to answer this kind of vague but troubling uh, one-liner, then, and we want to say that, that some actions, that terrorist actions are all uh, morally wrong, are for morally forbidden, then we need a clear sense of the word terrorism. And we also need a clear moral principle from which the wrongness of terrorism will follow pretty directly. Uh, and we need to apply both of those in an unbiased way. Right? So, uh, the problem, one of the one ways of looking at the slogan about one person's terrorists and so on, is that it's really a charge of bias, right? You're not applying the word, the label terrorism in an objective, unbiased way. You're dealing with friends and foes in a different way, right? So an unbiased definition applied in an unbiased way, a clear moral principle consistently applied to all the cases that have whatever characteristics an unbiased definition will uh, provide. Okay? So here's, here's the definition. Uh, for, so my view, and, and one thing I'm focusing on terrorist acts, lots of people seem to focus on terrorists as people, right? Terrorist acts would be acts done by terrorists, which is not such a helpful way of doing it. That actually just puts us back to the one person's terrorist thing, because then we're picking and choosing depending on what we think of various people. Uh, so I think that the best way to go at this is to look at, take the word terrorist in a way as a kind of adjective that modifies acts of certain sorts. So, the act, so terrorist acts have four features. They're acts of serious violence. They're committed to advance a political goal. They generally target limited, they can be large numbers, but limited numbers of people in order to influence a wider audience of people and or public decision makers. So the idea there is that it's a kind of tactic where you use physical violence against some people, the, the victims of the physical violence, but actually there's a target audience that you're trying to reach. So you kill, injure, whatever, these people to reach those. And then finally, that these acts intentionally kill and injure innocent people. Okay, so that's, that's my 
account. And my claim is that if we use this, that this is an unbiased definition, no matter what your politics are, you could accept uh, this definition. It, uh, and it's not that there aren't things that might be said against it or questions raised, but it's relatively clear and it tells you what features to look for. Any act, no matter who it's done by, with these features is a terrorist act. And so terrorism is, if you like, the employment of acts of these sorts. And terrorists are people who do these kinds of acts. So act is the, the terrorist act is the, the sort of root that helps us to clarify what these other things uh, mean. So this gives way to a simple argument for the wrongness of terrorism. So first we have a moral principle, intentionally killing and injuring innocent people is always wrong. And that's a version of what President Bush uh, was saying. Uh, the second is that terrorist acts intentionally kill and injured innocent people. And why is that? Well, that's the fourth part of the definition. So that's just part of the meaning. And from those two things, it follows that terrorist acts are always wrong. And so that, that's the simple argument for the, the wrongness of terrorism. So I want to raise the question, though, about premise number one. Intentionally killing and injuring innocent people is always wrong. And whether it's true that we really do believe that. Uh, and I'm going to give you some reasons for thinking that in some sense we don't. Depends, of course, who the we is, right? There's a lot of sort of we, they, right? The good people of the world, the others, whoever they might be. It's, so there's a kind of we, they thing. But in terms of that it's just very, very, very common for people, you know, there are widespread beliefs about these things, and we certainly think that we believe that all these actions are wrong, but uh, I want to suggest that that may not be true. So first, I want to mention, I'm going to give you quotes. Some, a couple of these are on the sheet, but not this one. So uh, there are a variety of views about the nature of, of warfare and conduct in warfare that actually suggests that there are times when it's okay, morally okay, morally permissible, morally right, to engage in acts that intentionally kill and injure innocent people. So here's uh, a view, some of you have uh, taken international relations or poli-sci or whatever, you may know these things. Uh, uh, political realism, which I've labeled a quote, respectable view that permits terrorist attacks. I call it respectable because it's you know, it's, there are people who have tenure who call themselves realists and whatever. They, they, there are some varieties, uh, so maybe not everybody agrees with exactly the same. But one of the key ideas in the realist tradition is that morality does not apply to war or relations between nations. And that decisions by national leaders should be based solely on what is in the national interest. That's what the realist says. A, an example of a realist thinker, George Kennan, who was in the State Department, author of the famous Mr. X uh, telegram in the late 1940s that helped to set the, or at least influence people in their thinking about the containment strategy in the Cold War. And somebody who later went, went on and wrote a lot, you know, histories. He actually was a very strong opponent of nuclear weapons during the Reagan administration. Uh, so very interesting uh, and highly respected character. So Kennan says, 
government is an agent, not a principal. And by that, he means that sort of like a lawyer, right? If you, if you uh, hire a lawyer, the, a, the lawyer is the, your agent to promote your interest. You are the principal participant in some kind of procedure. So government is an agent, not a principal. The principal is the people, say, of the United States or some other, other country. Its government's primary obligation is to the interests of the national security it represents, not to the moral impulses that individual elements of that society may experience. So this is a kind of, you know, a, a kind of put down, really, of moral considerations, right? So moral considerations turn out to be the moral impulses of some individuals in the society that, that people may experience or maybe not. So the basic message of political realism is that when we're in the business of fighting a war, there are no moral principles. The only thing that exists is national self-interest. And so it's pretty easy to see that if the rule is do whatever is in the national self-interest, then the implication for our topic is if terrorist attacks attacks on innocent people are in the national interest, then that's what you ought to do. So and this, this, I say, is sort of a respectable view associated with respectable people. Here's a second example. This is from Michael Walzer's uh, very, very influential book, Just and Unjust Wars, published originally in 1977. Uh, and, uh, so it, there are a number of claims here. The first is it's always wrong to attack civilians. So Walzer actually, one of the things that, that Walzer does in this book is to uh, defend, that's his book, not mine, uh, to defend noncombatant immunity. So early in the book, he states and defends the principle that it is always wrong to attack civilians. It's okay to attack soldiers, so, so military non-immunity, if you like, uh, combatant non-immunity, but civilian immunity. You're not that people are, who are civilians uh, are not supposed to be uh, targeted. And so here's a key line from uh, Walzer. Uh, he says uh, a Legitimate act of war, this is on 147 of my book, really, that's worth. Uh, a legitimate act of war is one that does not violate the rights of the people against whom it is directed. No one can be threatened with war or warred against unless through some act of his own he has surrendered or lost his rights. And then he adds, this fundamental principle underlies and shapes the judgments we make of wartime conduct. So this, it's not just some stray principle of non-combatant immunity, it's the fundamental principle of the part of the laws of war, the ethics of war, dealing with how war is conducted. So that, that's the view of the book for roughly the first half, two-thirds, his, his book. He also has a chapter on terrorism, and in the chapter on terrorism, he gives a kind of definition of terrorism as the random murder, those are his words, of uh, innocent people. Uh, and since terrorism is 
murder, then all terrorist acts are wrong. So by random here, of course, the acts are not exactly random, but they're not attacks directed at particular individuals. People may be attacked because they're members of some group. Usually that's the way it goes. Uh, but it doesn't matter which ones they are. Uh, and again, it doesn't matter partly because their individual identities don't matter, but their group membership will. And what particularly matters is who the target audience is for the message of the attack. So you kill some people, you don't much care exactly who they are, but they have to be, they have to have enough of a certain kind of identity so that other people will get the right message. So Walzer, not surprisingly, given that he thought it was always wrong to attack civilians, he thinks that if this is what terrorism is, then terrorism is always wrong. Where things get complicated, it's chapter 16 of his book, so fairly late on. 15 chapters, you think he believes in non-combatant immunity as an absolute uh, principle. He discusses uh, what he calls sup supreme emergencies. And the case that he uses as his model case is the situation of Britain uh, in sort of 1939, 1940. Uh, the armies of Nazi Germany had taken over most of Europe. Uh, all of these other possible allies had been defeated by the Germans. The uh, British were exposed. People thought that they were going to be invaded imminently by the Germans. And uh, the Nazis, as, as Walzer stresses, and I'm willing to go along with them, were not ordinary enemies. Uh, a lot of their values, their practices, the things they were prepared to do were particularly uh, dreadful. Uh, so he tells us that early in World War II, when the British faced a supreme emergency, they were justified in bombing German cities to, quote, break civilian morale. So these were attacks on German cities, not military targets. And they explicitly had, uh, I mean, this wasn't known publicly, but in terms of the people do, you know, managing this, the aim was to break civilian morale. And so the basic structure, this sort of message, uh, communicative view of terrorist acts, you attack certain people so as to communicate things to other people. So one part of the target audience was, were other German citizens who weren't killed, but whose morale was supposed to be lowered. And then there was the German government, the high, high officials, who were supposed to decide that because all these people had been killed and morale was down, that they should end the war. So, uh, well, I'll hold on the, the commentary. Let me just go one step further. And just So Walzer realizes that this is actually a big deal to have this, what I call, supreme emergency exception. Because he still wants to take non-combatant immunity very seriously. And he wants these exceptions to be exceptional. Uh, so he gives us some conditions for what, they, what features they might have to have. So a country is justified in attacking civilians when it faces an especially evil enemy, not an ordinary enemy, not the usual kinds of 
of military conflicts, but especially evil, where a country faces imminent defeat, as, as the British thought, many people thought in this period, and where there's no other effective means of resistance. So there's no alternative strategies. And this one is, is promising. People thought that it, it would work. Didn't really work, but. Um, so uh, maybe I won't say too much more here except to say that if we look at Walzer, get a really smart, important thinker, very careful thinker, very concerned about moral issues, that in the end, although he had absolutely condemned any attacks on civilians, and probably still after he wrote this stuff, thought of himself as, as still condemning all terrorist acts and so on, uh, nonetheless is approving of certain acts that have these same features of terrorist acts, right? Serious acts of violence, uh, promoting a political goal, uh, involving this kind of communicative stuff, targeting some people to send a message to other people, and finally intentionally uh, killing and injuring uh, innocent uh, people. So another sort of respectable source. Uh, here's a, a final example, and this is from an article written in 1947 uh, under the name of Henry Stimson. It's not clear that Henry Stimson actually wrote it uh, himself, but uh, it has an interesting history. But Henry Stimson was the Secretary of War under Presidents Roosevelt and Truman, and he was a particularly highly regarded, highly respected person. Uh, and he, w because he was Secretary of War, so he was involved in the decision about using the atomic bombs against Japan. Uh, and then two years later, after uh, 1947, I think this was sparked by the publication of John Hersey's book, Hiroshima, which was an account of what it was like for the people at the receiving end, uh, that the uh, people in the Truman government were concerned about the effect of this on public opinion. And so they, they kind of got uh, Stimson to write this article or get this article published, in any case, in Harper's Magazine. You can, you can look it up and find the whole thing. And so he's trying to explain the, the decision to use the bomb. My chief purpose, he said, was to end the war in victory with the least possible cost in the lives of the men in the armies which I had helped to raise. I believe that no man in our position and subject to our responsibilities holding in his hands a weapon for accomplishing this purpose could have failed to use it and afterward looked his countrymen in the face. So Stimson, uh, we ask, well, why did he think in this case, because the, so the Hiroshima and the Nagasaki bombings were attacks on cities, on civilian places of, of life. They were not attacks. There was one remark Truman made about Hiroshima being a military base, whatever, but that was not at all uh, important, and it wasn't a serious military base. Um, what Stimson saw as justifying the use of the bombs and killing of hundreds, of, a couple hundred thousand people, in, uh, civilians, was that he had a duty to the people in our armed forces. And he clearly felt that duty very strongly. And I don't mean to mock that sense of duty at all. 
but he, so he was faced with a situation where, as he said, he possessed a weapon that he thought could save the lives of many of our soldiers. And in the interest of doing that, he was willing to participate and approve of the use of the bombs, an attack, large-scale attack on civilians in Japanese cities. Now, again, these you may not, none of us hears these actions talked about as terrorism in general, but if the definition that I gave you is the right definition, uh, uh, then these count as terrorist acts. Um, and I skipped one important thing about, uh, about Stimson. Stimson also had a view about American public opinion. His view was that Americans, if they knew of the choice that was being faced in the high levels of government, Americans would want the bombing to go ahead. That in terms of American political culture, American public morality, whatever you want to call it, that it would be supportive of this. And I think he was right about that because I very seldom ever heard anybody criticizing this. And it's still a little bit of a taboo subject actually in our uh, culture. Um, here's a final just bit of evidence. Again, just make sure that the connection's clear. What I'm trying to show is in part that my, the topic, my, my title, was not really a rhetorical question, but that there really is a question about what do we believe about these things. Uh, and that the fact that we have these views that are around that people you know, sort of accept as reasonable or views or whatever, or even in the Stimson case would want these acts to go on, shows that maybe our beliefs are not the ones that President Bush and the scholars in the 2002 statement thought. So here's a, a couple of quotes from a really, really fine, fine book by Alexander Downs. I don't know him personally, but it's a very fine book um, called Targeting Civilians in War. Uh, the American public, he said, was resolutely opposed to urban area bombing to counter it as counter to American ideals in the 1930s. But when the United States entered the war and the costs of fighting began to mount, these idealistic declarations disappeared. Right, so people expressed horror at condemnation of attacks on cities and civilians. But when things got bad, opinions changed, or at least there were different opinions. And Late in his book, he says, and I think this first line is a great, great line, my examination of civilian victimization. So he makes up this, this word, civilian victimization. He doesn't want to use the word terrorism or any kind of loaded word. So it's, you know, it's not exactly a technical term. But that's the word he wants to use for all of these things together. My examination of civilian victimization has revealed that the norm against inflicting widespread systematic harm on non-combatants is a frail one. And I really like that notion, frail. People may, in some sense, believe it, but it's fragile. It can be broken. It can be changed. It's not solid. Uh, he later says, again, sort of talking about the results of 
uh, of the study time and again, and we can see this in the Stimson line, when warfare has become costly, the interest of states in winning wars has dictated the sacrifice of enemy innocence. In a way, what this suggests is that people, you know, when things are not going badly, there are no wars or nothing terrible happening, that people at least believe that they believe that it's always wrong to attack civilians. When things get really bad, they stop believing it, or maybe they didn't before. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what the belief state might. But at any rate, he Downs has a very, very, very good book talking about lots of cases, and he did this. He had this big database of I don't know, maybe 300 war, wars from uh, roughly 1800 until you know. 2008 or whatever the book was published, in which he looks at the kinds of tactics that, uh, that various governments at war engaged in and tries to correlate the use of these civilian victimization tactics with particular conditions. So he has kind of a theory about when and why this happens. Okay, so back to the question, do we really believe that attacking innocent people is always wrong? So there's a whole bunch of answers, maybe more answers. And, we care about, but, so one, the easy answer was yes, we believe it, okay? Kennan was wrong, Walzer's wrong, uh, Stimson was wrong, uh, and uh, all of these, you know, these actions done by anybody for any purpose, what was President Bush, murdering the innocent to advance an ideology is wrong every time, everywhere, et cetera. Uh, no purpose, or the, the scholar's statement, no purpose could justify the mass slaughter of innocent people, okay? But there's a high cost to holding that belief. And we can understand why people might not want to pay that cost. So, but one view is we, we sort of realize this happens, and we say, no, no, this is always wrong, period. A second is that, yes, we believe it, but our belief is unstable, and it may change under more threatening circumstances. We may not know that about ourselves, but maybe if we read histories like Downs, we sort of can imagine being in a, you know, it's one thing to sit in this nice room, comfortable, sunny day, but what about being in a very different circumstance? Would we make a different judgment? And so it, again, that's kind of confidence shaking in a way. Am I only saying this because it's at no cost? But if there were a cost, I'd say something different. Um, or we don't know what we believe. <laughs> <laughs> we just don't know, and we're torn. And I think we, in that case, are torn. On the one hand, we want to, because we think that people who approve of this sort of stuff must be horrible, evil people, uh, we want to see ourselves as not them, as humane people who condemn all attacks on innocent people. So in terms of our own self-image, what we think of ourselves, we don't want to feel like we're people who, who would approve of these ghastly attacks on fellow human beings. Uh, so we want that. But on the other hand, we also want our leaders to do everything possible to protect our country, our values, our soldiers, our loved ones when they are under threat. So we're in a muddle. We, if we're in, you're in that category, it's just hard to know. There's no happy place to rest, right? A couple of other things, so we could say, well, no, we don't actually believe it, okay? And one case of non-belief uh, would be hypocrisy, right? So 
the hypocrite is, I think of, of a hypocrite as somebody who uh, says things that they don't believe, knowing that they don't believe it, uh, and in their own practice regularly violate. So practice what you preach, not practicing what you preach. So I know that I always preach X, but I always do Y, but I keep saying that I'm pre preaching X. And I don't care that it's dishonest, that's just keeping up appearances. Okay? So hypocrisy is one, uh, one possible sort of state people might be in. The other, which I actually find more interesting, is the state of uh, calling, I didn't make this up, but I don't know who did, but moral blindness. So according to the moral blindness kind of interpretation, we don't actually believe that it's always wrong to attack innocent people, but we think we do. <coughs> and maybe that just means that if the going got tough, we would, we would change. And maybe, well, whatever. So we have a view uh, about ourselves, essentially a false belief about our own moral beliefs. So that's another possibility. And that, for some reason, I find that one really interesting. And I think my guess, I have no really good reason to think this, but my guess is that more people fall into that category than hypocrisy. Uh, but probably the last three, lots of us, uh, well, the last four are all pretty unsettling. So, OK. You want the happy part now? <laughs> so as a philosopher, so one of the first things as a philosopher you have to do is to start doing what William Jones was talking about, worrying about something, being really bothered by something. And so th these are all very bothersome things to me. And so one of the reasons that I thought about it enough to try to write this, this book was because I was trying to figure out, well, what is the answer? Because one of the things that, that comes up here is that these views that favor attacking civilians they're not stupid views. It took me a long time to acknowledge that, actually. I kept thinking, what's the matter with these people? But then, when you think about what's at stake, it becomes pretty understandable why people would want to do these things. And maybe, you know, we should think of our, about our enemies in a sort of similar, more complex way, and rather than saying they're flat evil. That's too comforting in a way. Um, so here's some thoughts about how we might proceed on this. So often when we're thinking about lots of different things, but questions like this, part of the reason why one view seems so obvious to us is because we're focusing on just one view. We've got a certain kind of mind, mindset. Maybe we're thinking about dead civilians and how horrible it is. And so we say, no, 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 this could never be right. Or maybe we're thinking about dead soldiers. And we're saying, no, 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 that can't be permitted, or whatever. But we get sort of fixed on one thing. So I've sort of developed this, at least I try to do this, uh, a sensitivity to you know, trying to make sure that I, I appreciate that there's actually a range of options so that we can make comparative judgments. Right? All, all choices are comparative. Right? You choose one thing not just for itself, but because it's better than others or you avoid things because they're worse than others. So what I have here, and it's, it's also on the, the handout, so you can, you know, before you go to sleep, if you want to review this or whatever, you can look it over. But uh, so here's an, an array uh, of views that are organized in terms of 
you know, from the most permissive rules of war down to the most restrictive, right? So the most permissive is anything goes. The most restrictive is pacifism, no war at all. And then we can, we have other, so to speak, candidates for what are the rules of war. So the first extreme, calling extreme realism, anything goes. All's fair in love and war, anything goes. Uh, the second, moderate realism, well, it's silly to say anything goes because there might be some really terrible things that actually don't do you any good from a military perspective. So why allow those, right? So, so the second, moderate realism insists that you only do things that have some military value. The third, proportionality says, well, no, it's not enough to say that the things just have some military value, but there has to be some proportion between the military benefit and the losses or damages that are done so that it would be wrong to inflict a lot of damage on people if the military payoff was very low, right? So it's supposed to be a kind of proportionality relationship. And so the, each of these, in a certain way, the way I'm presenting them, uh, at least to a point, is supposed to be an improvement or at least it's a tightening of the restrictions. May or may not be an improvement. It's a tightening. Then uh, one thing to notice about these first three is that none of them give any special status to civilians. There's no such thing as non-combatant immunity in, in those first three views. So a fourth way of sort of, of uh, making more restrictions would be to have something I call limited civilian immunity. Non-combatant, so it's a rule that says non-combatants may not be attacked except to achieve significant military value. Right, so it's a little bit like the well, it's, it's different proportionality in that it explicitly mentions non-combatants, civilians, and it does raise the bar a little bit. That is, small values won't, small military benefits won't justify it. It has to be really very significant. That, too, may seem a little bit too permissive, and so Walzer's supreme emergency rule is non-combatants may not be attacked except in supreme emergencies, so these really you know, kind of exceptional, he thinks, uh, situations and only in those. And then finally, and I put this in bigger, bigger font because this is the one that I uh, defend, what I call strong civilian Im immunity that non-combatants may not be attacked, period. So get rid of all of the proportionalities, the balancings, the, the weighings, whatever, that there is a solid line there. You could go one step further to pacifism, which essentially says that neither combatants nor non-combatants may be attacked. Right? Nobody may be attacked. Um, so my book is a defense of that uh, view. And I just want to say a very few quick words about the method that ultimately I adopted uh, uh, to try to justify this. this let me add, when I started writing this book, I did not think that I had to defend the view that it was wrong to attack innocent people. I assumed that was everybody's view. So what I've sort of led you through this awakening process, if you like, I went through it over time. It took me a while to fully take this in. Uh, and so I didn't, I didn't think I'd have to do what I'm going to tell you about right now, which is to justify non-combatant immunity. It just seemed to me. That was axiomatic. Uh, but I now believe and I think, no, 
that it's not axiomatic. Okay, so the method that I ultimately use is uh, a version of, of a moral theory called rule utilitarianism. And rule utilitarianism is, is a view uh, about the uh, evaluation of actions as being right or wrong. And so the idea is that actions are right or wrong uh, depending on what the rules of a moral code might be. So an action is right if it accords with those rules and if it's wrong if it violates those rules. And the moral code, so then the question is, well, how do we know what rules belong in the moral code? The, the rules of the moral code are the ones whose acceptance by people would maximize utility or overall well-being. In other words, if you think about a moral code as a set of rules, each one of which, if followed or if accepted, because there are good, none of them are going to be followed all the time, but if accepted, would uh, result in a society where people would be, uh, their interests, their well-being, would be made as good as possible. So when we're considering rules, if rules are going to lead to bad results, then we're not going to want those <coughs> rules. If, or if we're talking about some that seem to lead to good results, then we're going to want to choose the ones that would lead to the very best results. So for example, uh, you're talking about this earlier in Sally Schultz's classes, you know, rules about self-defense. You might say, well, why do we have First of all, why do we have rules that prohibit murder? Well, because we think we're better off if people, that is not we, just you and me, but that everybody's better off if, in general, people don't go around killing each other. We also think then, so then you could ask the question, well, should the rule be never uh, kill anybody? Well, that would be one that's sort of a pacifist answer, but somebody might think, seems reasonable in a way, that if you say, well, never kill anybody unless, it, unless they're trying to kill you, or unless it, you have to do it in self-defense. And then you could see why that might be beneficial, because it would allow people to protect themselves, and it would discourage people from trying to kill other people. So you'd want to give this kind of utilitarian rationale for any, any rule. And so similarly with the rules of warfare, you want to look for rules that are going to allow wars to be fought, but also constrain the ways in which they're fought so that uh, you diminish as much as possible the uh, amount of harm and, and damage, suffering, that is created for people, right? So in a way, what the aim here is to try to get the benefits of warfare, which can be the defense of you know, ourselves, our, our lives, our values, our society, et cetera, things that we care about. Uh, you want that benefit, but you also want to be very careful since the methods of war are so destructive that you minimize as much as possible those destructive aspects. And one of the, so the basic argument for non-combatant immunity is that if you could divide up the people who are direct targets of attacks and limit the allowable ones to soldiers, to people who are in military forces, that would take a huge number of people, most people, and put them off limits. They would not be legitimate targets. 
And so the rule of war that I think would best promote uh, overall well-being would be a rule that lets you fight wars but also uh, did not permit attacks on civilians. And so uh, what I would have to do, and I won't try to do it now, <coughs> is to show why that rule works out better than, for example, a rule like Michael Walzer's, which also tries to constrain warfare but leaves open this exception. And my main concern is once you allow the exception, you're finished. And, the, and an example, actually, the 9-11 attacks are a great example. If you read Walzer's account and you see what he has in mind by a supreme emergency, it's clear that the 9-11 attacks, no matter how horrible they were, were not a supreme emergency. People in the United States did not face extermination, enslavement. We were not under sort of the imminent threat of a takeover. Uh, and yet, the response to 9-11 really was the kind of thing that Walzer is talking about, where the rules that you, th that you thought were really important, maybe absolute, suddenly people feeling that they're in a supreme emergency feel free to violate. And so we've, you know, in the last decade plus, we've had torture, we've had uh, detention without trial, we've had, uh, you know, uh, wiretapping without warrants, we've had, so the Geneva Conventions were passed aside as being quaint, no longer relevant, U.S. Constitution took a beating, all sorts of things that prior to 9-11, the idea that Americans would sanction torture, shocking, which then became something that seemed sort of acceptable. So I think that what we see there psychologically is that the temptation for people to think that their current dire circumstances are a supreme emergency is very great and maybe greatest for uh, governmental leaders who, after all, do have a responsibility for lots of people. On that happy note, uh, thank you very much. <clears throat>
bombing cities. Uh, I'm tempted to think that in your uh, use of dual utilitarianism, if one built into that that the enemy was Hitler, that you could make rule utilitarianism, your rule would be don't do it unless you're trying to defend somebody as bad as Hitler. I don't know whether that would work or not. Uh, and lastly, this business about bombing civilians, you know from the Grayling book that at the end of the war there's a strategic bombing survey done by the Americans, and what the Americans, and I think the British might have had the same equivalent, decided was the deliberate bombing of civilians by the British was not militarily effective. Uh, the more civilians were bombed, the more they wanted to continue the war, both in Germany and in England, because they were convinced of the horrors of losing to such an opponent who were bombed. I'm sorry to load you so much. Uh, now, I agree a lot with you know, uh, what, what you said. I disagree on some of the points. But um, yeah, so one of the things that's kind of interesting, uh, just starting the last point. So yeah, there are these various studies that were done after the war about the efficacy of the bombings, uh, the city bombings. And they really, they, they failed. Um, and I think there is this tendency, maybe it's a sort of technological fix thing, but there had been, so the way, the way I sort of understand this, and there is a lot of history that I, I don't know, but you know, World War I was a terrible war uh, in which there's slaughter of soldiers uh, caught in trenches for years. I mean, it was just astoundingly terrible. And after the war was over, there were people who wanted, you know, never again, not, not to have that again. And you also had, actually, during World War I, World War I had the, I don't know if it was the first, but there were bombings of aerial bombardments in World War I. It's very small planes, not a whole lot of them, but London was bombed. And so the, there were these people who, these sort of air war theorists, who developed the view. They just thought, hey, look, World War I was this disaster because you had the soldiers stuck in trenches, you know, close together for long periods of time. If we just had aerial bombardment of the home countries, you get, you, you know, you fly over the trenches, you go there, you bomb the cities, and they're going to surrender, right? So there was this, this kind of utopian, very optimistic, hopeful view about the efficacy, uh, and it turned out to be, to be false. I mean, it was just wrong. It just meant that more people died, but it didn't do more to, to end the war. And uh, so in that sense, I, I sort of described a few places World War II as a kind of test case, right, that for noncombatant immunity, that if you, if you allow, so the idea here would be somehow that if you allowed these attacks on civilians, you'd come out ahead because the war would end sooner, right? Well, to the extent that we have empirical experience about this, I would say that's, that's false. And, and you know, wars have gotten more and more destructive of civilian lives. Every war, as we sort of go through the 20th century, the percentage of civilians who die goes up and soldiers down. So we have this really terrible trend. Another, if people have the sort of stomach and such, another really great book, a man named Hugo Slim wrote a book called Killing Civilians. Uh, very widespread, 
And so, again, if we want to have a, an ethic of war that permits war, but does control and constrain the damage to human life, human well-being, non-combatant immunity as an absolute principle seems to me the way to go. But it is based on an empirical argument, which of course could be wrong, right? This is one of the woes of utilitarianism, that you're making predictions about what will be the effect of rules, and none of us is absolutely certain about that, but we can look at the histories that we have, see what the trends are, and see whether these uh, means of fighting actually do uh, any good. Actually, with the British, I believe that late in, like, by 1943-44, um, I'm blanking on the guy, who, Harris, who was the, the head and the big proponent of Arthur Harris of the, of the city bombings uh, in Britain, he actually gave up opportunities to bomb strategic military stuff because he, he, this had become his mania. You win the war by attacking civilians so that they actually didn't bomb oil, you know, storage places or other kinds of facilities that would have had a more direct impact. So th there is a kind of, I don't know, it, well, kind of irrationality, but it, it certainly wasn't in England's interest at, at that point. As for things being as bad as Hitler, I mean, Saddam Hussein was as bad as Hitler. You know, we, we've seen people somehow, the human race seems to be able, capable of generating some pretty terrible specimens of ourselves. Uh, and, you know, with time, it also changes, right? The people in the past, you know, in 100 years, Hitler may look benign. I hope not, but. Uh, so everybody, the current one, this is why I object to the notion of rogue states as well. These are just, they're like what the one man's terrorist slogan says. We've got these terms that we just slap on to people that we don't like or as, as propaganda. Um, maybe I should get some other comments and questions. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, so thanks for your uh, talk. So uh, I was wondering if, uh, if the issue of terror if, uh, uh, is, uh, is a focus or was a focus of your uh, of your research are only uh, an example of uh, uh, moral relativism. That, uh, namely, that uh, instead of terror there, uh, or so, or so, uh, if it's not the case that instead of terror we could uh, talk about slavery, right? So everybody thinks that slavery is bad, but uh, for example, you can see in Karl Marx uh, uh, claims that slavery uh, was uh, was good because it promoted. Uh, positive, uh, uh, positive uh, uh, goals, right? Or everybody uh, thinks that, uh, that stealing is very bad, but uh, many people uh, enjoyed from what uh, Robin Hood uh, did and so on and so on. So you see that uh, many people <coughs> think that the Holocaust was uh, horrible, but you see even the, the Nazi, uh, the Nazi who, who, who stood trial in the Nuremberg uh, trial says that uh, Yes, it's it's very bad to kill people, but uh, to to kill them by gas. But uh, we did something very positive, right? So we helped uh, uh, the humanity to get rid of of vermin. So is it is it only a question here of uh, of moral relativism, or there is something uh, peculiar uh, in terror that you are uh, trying to uh, uh, to shed light? Now the, it is also uh, it is also related to something uh, to something else. It is about uh, uh, the structure. Can I try that one first? So, uh, sorry, 
So whether the issue of terror is only an example of moral relativism, right? That instead of terror, we could put here, uh, for example, taking, uh, taking revenge. So everybody thinks that taking revenge is very bad, right? But if we abstract a little bit, uh, uh, for example, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the issue of punishment or putting uh, people into jails, we see that this is sort of, uh, of taking revenge, right? So, or if we, uh, for example, everybody thinks that stealing is very bad, right? But uh, lots of people enjoy, uh, enjoyed of the, uh, of the uh, col uh, colonial, colonial uh, of the colonies in Africa and so on and so on. Everybody thinks that slavery uh, is bad, but uh, you, can, you can find in Karl Marx and other people a claim that, so I'm asking you whether terror uh, has here some peculiar uh, uh, status or, or, or is it another example for uh, moral relativism? When you say, are, are you, I, I'm not sure if you're suggesting that I'm a moral relativist no, or, no, I'm asking, or if you're a moral relativist and no, you're I'm, using these examples. No, no, I'm asking, I'm asking whether uh, terror here uh, okay. is, uh, or is an example for moral okay. relativism that some people think that, uh, that it is bad and some other people think that, uh, that it is okay. good because you're okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, my, it's a presupposition, sort of way, of my, my book that uh, certain kinds of moral relativism are false and that there are uh, objectively correct moral judgments. And so I'm trying to, uh, you know, so study a particular set of judgments uh, to see which ones are the correct ones. Um, the reason why terrorism is the focus is because a lot there were a lot of questions that were generated about the kinds of judgments made of terrorism and in fact what what i want to do in the book and this is really the significance of the of the title terrorism and the ethics of war so my view was that you could only have morally credible views about terrorism the wrongness of terrorism if you had a more general set of views about the ethics of war, because terrorism turns out it's it's just attacks on civilians, not just, but and so it shares a feature with something that happens in warfare. So if you thought that all war, all terrorism was wrong, but you thought that in wars it was fine and dandy to kill civilians, then that would be a contradictory uh, set of beliefs and your, your condemnations of terrorism wouldn't be uh, credible or plausible. So uh, terrorism, it, it is in one way uh, merely an example, but it was a really very important example. Uh, but it, the problems of evaluating terrorist acts are shared by or raise pro broader problems about uh, moral evaluations of war generally. You can't, you, you can't have a credible view about terrorism without having a credible view about warfare. Yeah. So uh, I have three questions too. One is I'm wondering, uh, what if I were to say that I, I question your assumption about innocent civilians? Uh, so for example, uh, work in imperialist society, uh, all Americans or most Americans are participating in a world order that's uh, uh, that is destroying the world and we need to defend it. All people are complicit in it. You know. And the second point is uh, 
about the notion that we can send people off into some mountain and they fight each other. These, uh, this, this seems to me very, uh, uh, very medieval. You know, that we, we have rules of war. These are glori we glorify these people that wear these red uniforms and blue uniforms, and we play this game and we all sit back and they don't affect us because we're innocent. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, I wonder whether or not that really is a realistic model for what, why war would right. be justified. And, and the third is that this assumption of, of effective fighting, you know, if, uh, when you have some a power like the United States uh, and all of the incredible weaponry that we have, and then you put us up against these handful of people that, that we don't like, yeah, it's hard to imagine saying go off and fight an effective war. Uh, so these, although these some people have recently been doing a fairly good job, turns out to be. Well, breaking the rules has certainly helped, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, American military might, power, et cetera, I think has been very badly, the image of it, very badly damaged and shown to be wanting. Uh, and somehow these sort of ragtag, you know, non-professional armies and whatever uh, have been very effective. You're right, a lot of it ha actually has been because of attacks on civilians and taking advantage of that. But nonetheless, uh, the, the idea of people being able to fight effectively against really big armies and uh, big societies, wealthy societies, uh, it, it doesn't seem as outlandish as it maybe did at some earlier time. Um, I mean, the word, you know, the word, one of the things I, I think I talk about uh, I, it's been a while since I reread this part of my book, but uh, uh, the notion of effective fighting actually is a little bit troublesome because one w kind of appealing definition would be that a, a, ma a means of fighting is effective if it gets you victory. But then that actually then turns into anything goes, right, <laughs> in a certain way. So it has to be something like a fighting chance. Right, so you can do things that will give you a fighting chance in a way, but within the constraints of, of these rules. Uh, the first question you, you raised uh, about American complicity and sort of who's innocent, and this is a very contentious subject, and there are some very thoughtful people. Uh, Virginia Held has some comments that seem a little bit sympathetic to the idea that people in democratic countries have a responsibility for their government's policies and that it's not too outlandish to think that they're not really innocent. Uh, and there are some other, you know, equally thoughtful people who've made that kind of claim. I, I reject that entirely. Um, first, I want to preserve this rule. And I think the rule has a lot of value. So I want to resist that tendency. Second, in terms of being complicit, I think that, for example, even, and I discussed this in the book a little bit, paying taxes, I don't think that's enough. I, do, I think that, that to be complicit in a way that makes you non-innocent, you have to play a more significant causal role in bringing certain kinds of bad effects uh, about. And so the person who pays taxes, or even the tax collector, who is involved in a job that is kind of an all-purpose thing. It's not like being in the military, even though it, the money does go to support the military in part. 
uh, that that's not quite enough. But the other thing about, about uh, ordinary people in societies that do bad things, let's say, uh, not being responsible, is that often uh, they don't even know exactly what's, what's happening. That is, the, and their degree of control, okay, we've all just had an election in which we've been able to, how many people voted in the election, if I remember? Uh, no, I don't mean how many, I mean what the number was. Oh. I'm, congratulations. <laughs> but anybody remember how many votes Obama? 118 million. 118 million? Okay, so each of us then, in terms of electoral impact on whatever bad things the United States is doing in the world, have a one over 118 millionth degree of responsibility. So it's pretty minuscule. The other thing is that ordinary people are very dependent on governments for information about this stuff. If you want to read a really great, great book about this, Daniel Ellsberg's memoir called Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. Very powerful. I've, my first vote, 1964, was for Lyndon Johnson, who was not going to send our boys to Asian wars, and against Barry Goldwater, who was going to you know, lead to a nuclear disaster, and so on. While we were preparing to vote, Lyndon Johnson was preparing for the escalation of the war in Vietnam and running as the peace candidate. Who could possibly know those things? Did we endorse those things? Uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical about claims of uh, ordinary citizens being responsible enough to merit uh, being killed or injured in, in these sort of attacks. Yeah, hi. Two very brief questions. Um, in your actual definition of terrorism attacks, uh, what would you say to those who commit terror just for terror's sake? So, for example, uh, Clockwork Orange, where they just are committing crimes just for the sake of terror, not with the advancement of a political goal. And two, um, with your strong civilian immunity, how would you propose defending against guerrilla combatants and that direction of warfare? Okay. So the first, um, so basically I just, uh, uh, I just think that as part of the definition, having a political agenda is really important. And there, there are cases, for example, the, forget what year this was, the Washington, D.C. snipers. So those two, and I don't believe were ever described as terrorists. Uh, they had no agenda. There was no political significance. So I, you know, and the other thing, just in thinking about definitions, right? So definitions, this may sound a little weird to say this, but it's not the case that there's a true definition of terrorism. There are a bunch of definitions, actually over 100, I guess, uh, in various places. You can find lists of these things. But definitions are, are better or worse depending on how helpful they are to us in clarifying issues. It's not going to clarify anything if we, you know, if we include as terrorists some maybe mentally disturbed or whatever people who go off on some spree. So there are a lot of issues raised by terrorism, and uh, widening the definition in that way would not be helpful. Uh, so your second point about guerrilla warfare and non-combat immunity is, and it's really it's related to your question about fighting the mountaintops in different colored uniform, right? It, it, we're not in that world. That, what that shows, it definitely establishes that it can be really, really difficult to avoid injuring and killing civilians. But people have a duty to try. 
So first of all, and notice that the principle of non-combatant immunity by itself, all it says is don't target, don't intentionally go after people that you know are civilians. You're allowed to make mistakes, right? But you also, so the other part of it, and the last couple of chapters uh, of my book are about collateral damage issues, which are really important. Part of me is embarrassed that I have so little in the book on that because that's the more usual thing now is to say, oh, well, sorry, you know, it was an accident. We didn't mean it. We took precautions, et cetera. And so looking at those carefully is really important. But the, the international laws uh, express, I think, some good moral views where you're supposed to, to the best of your ability, know what your target is. You have an obligation to know. Okay? Again, that may be difficult and it may be that you're threatened in a way and have to do something or nothing, right? Bad situation. Uh, and that you take precautions to avoid killing civilians. You know what you're targeting and you take precautions to avoid or minimize civilian deaths. Uh, so that's, again, I wouldn't want to be in that position personally. I'm sorry that people are in those difficult positions. Uh, but it's part of the, the price for having reasonable, morally appropriate laws of fighting. Other than that, we just let people loose. And you know, the other thing just about military life, again, as an outsider, it's full of rules, right? The, the whole basic thing is people take orders. You're not supposed to have discretionary power, you know, more than is necessary. So people, uh, uh, people are supposed to be, you know, following kind of a chain of command, and uh, so rules are part of that that life, and people take on the responsibility to follow those rules. Yeah. Uh, just two very quick questions. One is, based on your definition, it seems that you would not consider the weather underground to be a terrorist organization. Is that even the case? Uh, so, uh, well, why don't let's we'll stop with that for a second. So what did they, what, just remind me exactly well, they what they did. intentionally injure or harm human beings. They okay. committed so uh, there were some symbolic bombs. bombings, many of them, of sites linked to American imperialism and capitalism. Yeah. So one question that comes up is whether the, uh, whether attacks on property can count as terrorism. And I would say definitely yes if they threaten people. Um, uh, if they don't, I'm, I'm really not sure. So I know that there were some of these, these bombings. I, I'm not in favor of them. Um, but uh, at best, I'd say they're, they're sort of borderline cases. The paradigm cases are attacks on people. So it's a, it's a non-paradigm case. And it may, you know, I, I'd be inclined not to call it terrorism. but. You know, again, at a certain point, having written you know five chapters, hundred pages on the definition, there you do also reach a point where the the main issue is not the definition. The main issue is, for example, deciding what's right and and wrong. In this case, we don't have to decide whether it's terrorism or not in order to decide whether it's right or wrong. It may be less bad because they did a building and not people, but still is, it, I would say, the wrong thing to do. Bad form of political protest. The second question is, uh, do you run the risk of displacing the ambiguity of the term terrorism to the ambiguity of the term non-combatant? 
Well, I try very hard to define a non-combatant or a civilian. And basically, uh, there's a two-part condition. One, so anybody who's in the military is a combatant. So that's a, a kind of status definition, right? Your, your membership makes you. And then the other is a kind of causal role. If you're a civilian, so we have civilians, say, who work in the CIA and who do drone attacks, or we had civilian contractors in Iraq with weapons. Those people, they are civilians in some sense, but they're actively engaged in conduct of war. They don't have non-combatant immunity. That's an interesting case, I, you know, and I'm a little puzzled by it. Um, and it ties up with the, somebody asked in the class this morning about the, the targeting the Pentagon. Um, so I guess part of me wants to say, so I don't have a, a real view, but so part of me, whichever right, left, uh, wants to say, yes, they are responsible for the conduct of the war. They are legitimate targets. On the other hand, the top civilian leadership in countries are also the people who can make the decision to stop it. And so we, we actually need an intact government to be able to end a war okay. I mean, look, at, look what happened in Iraq with the overthrow of Saddam Hussein's government and it's just total falling apart and then we were left with, with chaos. It would have been much better if we had gotten Saddam Hussein to sign a treaty saying you won, right? Where there's some authoritative figure who kind of seals it, right? This is the end of the war, folks. That doesn't mean that every time it's going to be the end of the war. But anyway, so I'm, I really have mixed feelings. But I, uh, I think that these top civilian leaders are responsible. And in that sense, I, uh, I, I don't know that I would even call it a terrorist attack. An assassination is not necessarily a terrorist attack if the person's not innocent, right? Uh, but on the other hand, we may need these people to play a constructive role, even if they've botched it. So again, you get so you gave me two very nice cases where I, in a certain way, I'm kind of undecided. I don't have a firm opinion. Uh, if there are people who put property damage into uh, notions of a terrorist act, I could do that without it being very much of a big deal. I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to focus on attacks on people, uh, but there's enough similarity, right? You. And certainly you can imagine, especially attacks on symbolic buildings, right, where the message part is very powerful. So it's a kind of violent act against uh, non-living things, but that sends a powerful message and all. But anyway, I, I, it's bad enough, so I'd like to just keep it, that is the issues are, are, are tangled enough so as to try to draw some lines. And in the end, the def again, the definitions are tools to help us think. And we don't, if we decide that Donald Rumsfeld was a terrorist, uh, we still might think that in his case, 
he shouldn't have been targeted or anything because we wanted him around to help try to get a peace. I don't know. Or George Bush or whatever. And the weather underground, I don't, I don't know. It, you know, I, I would want to discourage those kind of attacks, whether we call them terrorism or not. 